New York City wants to close Rikers Island within the next 10 years. The plan involves an effort to reduce the inmate population so the city can open small jails to replace the massive complex. Hi, I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. One way the city is looking to reduce recidivism is through a jails-to-jobs initiative. But getting a job isn't always easy for someone who spent time behind bars. Employers can be reluctant to hire someone with a criminal record, and ex-offenders with visible tattoos can face an especially hard time securing work. Enter Dr. David Ories, who practices on Manhattan's Lower East Side. He runs a program that removes visible gang and prison tattoos for free. The statistic that powers the entire Fresh Start project is this, that if you get out of jail and don't have a job, that group of people, the unemployed, have a 90% return to prison rate in two years. More from Dr. David Ories coming up. But first, we check in with another organization that works to help former inmates rebuild their lives. It's called the Fortune Society. Stanley Richards is the organization's executive vice president. He joins me now in the studio. Stanley, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me, George. So what would you say is the biggest challenge people face when they get out of prison? I would start off by saying uh, there are a multitude of challenges for people trying to rebuild their lives after incarceration. One is maintaining a sense of hope that things in their life will be different. I often say people come home and no one comes home saying, I can't wait to get back to prison. People come home and say, I'm not going back. I'm going to have a different life. And they have a vision of what that different life would look like. Having a job, for many we're seeing now, having a place to live, a safe place to live, being able to put food on a table, being able to uh, participate and care for their family. All the things that people who don't go to prison uh, spend their entire life trying to uh, get hold of and to do. And so it's all of those things that uh, impact people when they come home. So it's motivation, having a sense of hope, being able to get a job, being able to have housing. For those who have substance abuse or mental illness, one, recognizing that they need to address those issues. Two, having a low threshold, immediate access to those kind of services. And one of the things I'm most proud of is being part of an organization called Fortune Society. Yeah, so let's talk about the Fortune Society. What kinds of programs do you provide to help people who are getting out of prison rebuild their lives? We we built the model very organically by the needs of the men and women who walk through our doors. So we started off as an advocacy organization talking about issues of confinement that evolved into an education program because we realized people didn't have education. Then it was they needed help with finding jobs because people needed to earn a living. Then it was um, HIV AIDS. It evolved to licensed outpatient substance abuse treatment, licensed mental health. We provide the continuum of housing. So emergency housing, transitional, permanent housing, uh, family services, crisis intervention. We provide all the services men and women need to re-enter society or prevent people from going in. We have alternatives to incarceration program. So we're sort of a one-stop shop where people can come in, get access to whatever service they need under one roof. As you said, Stanley, people who go into prison, when they get out of prison, they don't want to go back into prison. But sometimes that does happen, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, it happened with me multiple times, right? I would get released and said, you know, I'm not going back. And two weeks into my release, something would happen that I would get the message that I wasn't worth anything, that I couldn't do anything, and that my life would be about cycling in and out of jail. And before I knew it, I had accepted that reality, and sure enough, I ended up back in prison. It wasn't until my last incarceration, went to college, got my GED, and all of those things started telling me that I was smart, that I was able to do something different, that I can take control over my life. And then I knew at that point, as long as I never gave up on myself, I wouldn't go back to prison. I knew it wasn't my community. It wasn't my poverty. It was me. And when I was able to take control over my life, and when I came home, I had some ups and downs. I didn't have great success when I first came home. My first job, I was a telemarketer. Didn't make a dime doing telemarketing. But that was a job. And it gave me the foundation to sort of build the life I have today. And Fortune was the place that hired me as a counselor. And so I know people get used to going back forth into prison and jail and they know how to do that life what they don't know is how to do life on the outside mm -hmm. and at fortune we help people understand and give them the tools to live out here now of course you don't only talk the talk as you mentioned you walked the walk absolutely so i'm sure a lot of folks who are coming to the fortune society can really relate to your story and see that hope in their own lives absolutely just the other day i met uh, a childhood friend of mine who just came home from federal prison at Fortune. And we embraced, and he was glad to see me. And most often when we f come from the block, if you don't see anybody, you think they're either dead or they're in prison for the rest of your life. their life. When he seen me, he was like, you have fortune? I said, yeah, this is where I've been. And, and, and I was glad to see him because he's now coming into the organization that I have a privilege of working at every day, and he's going to rebuild his life. And him seeing me in the position that I'm in, I'm sure it gives him hope that it's possible for him if it's possible for me. Where did you grow up, Stanley? In Soundview in the Bronx. Soundview in the Bronx. And what was the path that led you to prison? In Soundview, I you know I, I I grew up. I was in uh, Black Spades when we had the gangs in the seventies, and it went from the gangs in the seventies to selling drugs on Cozy Corner. And when you start living that life, you cycle in and out of jail and prison, and that's all I thought I would be able to do in my life. I dropped out of school. All the messages I got in school was that I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't good enough, and I believed that. And I turned to the streets. And Soundview was my life. It's so interesting. Um, our district attorney, Darcel Clark, is from Soundview. We, uh, we, I didn't know her in Soundview, but her father and my father were best friends. But we grew up in the same place. And it's so strange. Most of us went the way of prison, jail, or death. And Darcel went the way of graduating from high school, going to college, getting a law degree, and now becoming our district attorney. We are so proud of her, but we had different paths, same place. And that's the kind of place Soundview is. It could it it raised Darcel and it raised me. Is the Fortune Society staffed mostly by ex offenders? Yes. Uh over fifty percent of our staff are formerly incarcerated. So part of what we do 
Uh, Fortune is, is an organization, as you said earlier, is the organization that walks the talk. Um, we want people to know that change is possible and change is in everyone when you walk through the door, from the, from the receptionist to the counselor to the executive vice president, formerly incarcerated. As you mentioned, Stanley, sound view can put people on very different paths. That being said, what's the one thing you wish you knew growing up that you know now that would have prevented you from going down that road that got you involved with gangs and got you to prison? Uh, two things. The one thing I remember about Soundview is that I, I always thought there was no other world, no other uh, place other than Soundview. And so you grow up in this very isolated and insulated community that all you see is all you think that exists. And what I learned is that it's a huge world out there with huge opportunity and that the the what's available in my little community in Soundview is not the be all and end all. And if I wish I would have known the the resources that are out in this world, the potential that if one applies himself or herself, what you can achieve, I just didn't see it in Soundview. What I seen was the drug dealers on the corner. I seen, uh, the, the, for me, that was success. Being able to have a car, being able to be on the corner and be respected in that community. That was success to me. I now know that's not success. Um, that led me down the path to incarceration. What I have today, where I see the beauty in myself, I see the beauty in others, giving people second chances, seeing and knowing the strength of people, that people are resilient, they're smart, they're talented, and to be part of nourishing that is just amazing. How challenging is it to overcome the stigma of being someone who has spent time behind bars? It's challenging in that you have to develop strength and, uh, about who you are. See, I know, our founder David Rothenberg often says, the crime is what people did. It's not who they are. And that's the strength in knowing who you are. See, I've done some bad things. And I hope by contributing in the way I'm contributing, I'm making amends to my community and those I hurt. But I know the crimes I did, it's not who I am. I am not a bad person. I am a good person. I'm a decent person. I'm a, I'm a person that has compassion. I've done some bad things. And to be able to differentiate those things allows me to talk freely about my conviction, talk freely about my, uh, my incarceration. I don't have to hold my head down because I was incarcerated. I can hold my head up because I know I'm a good person. What role can government and civil society play in helping formerly incarcerated people rebuild their lives? Government can play a huge role. One is supporting and funding organizations who are on the ground doing that work. That's a huge role for government. The other role for government is, is walking the talk, hiring people who are formerly incarcerated. You know, in New York City, we have progressive laws around uh, not discriminating against people with criminal convictions on the employment front. Let's see the city start hiring. Be proactive and hire people with criminal records. Walk the talk. And I think this, the, the city can do that. We're starting to see some of that, but they can do a lot more of it. What are among the reforms you're seeing right now that you're most excited about? 
Oh, uh, I was part of the Lipman Commission that just came out with the Lipman Report, and we put related for, to Rikers Island. Related to Rikers Island, it was started by Melissa Mark Viverito, who is the speaker of the city council on her State of the City uh, speech last year, called for this independent commission to look at our entire criminal justice system led by former Chief Judge Jonathan Lippman. And we came out with a report, a blueprint, to show the city and the state, step by step, what we can do as a collective body, government, nonprofits, all working together to reduce the number of people we have incarcerated, close Rikers Island, and use incarceration very judiciously so that we have an ability to have a smaller footprint on criminal justice and we could start reducing mass incarceration. And we are so proud of that report. Stanley, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Stanley Richards is Executive Vice President of the Fortune Society. More at fortunesociety.org. The road to stability can be especially bumpy for ex-offenders with visible tattoos. That's where Dr. David Ories comes in. He practices on Manhattan's Lower East Side and runs a program that removes visible gang and prison tattoos for free. I recently caught up with him to learn more about his Fresh Start initiative. The Fresh Start program started... 2004 maybe I'm, I have lots of tattoos which you can see on the radio and my friends all started bothering me to get a laser to remove tattoos and I go why would I do that and they go well we own tattoo shops all my friends are tattooed they, they own like 20 laser tattoo places because we have lots of clients coming who want cover ups and we can't cover up a, a bowling ball with, with anything except another bowling ball that's too dark so we need you to lighten it for us to make it 80% lighter and then we could put a butterfly or a swan or whatever the hell they want. I go, all right. So I thought about it, did the math. Okay, I'll get a machine. So I got a machine. I'm doing that, and I'm not removing tattoos so much as lightening them for cover-ups. So they want their crappy tattoo lightened and turned into a, um, a, more, you know, a better tattoo, a sleeve or whatever. So that's my business. Going along fine. And then I started getting quite a few friends of friends who need tattoos removed for their livelihood. Like they can't get a job because they got a star in their face or you know, they have prison tattoos on their face or neck. Visible, they call them. Which means face and neck. Visible, obviously tattoos are visible. But it means face or neck. And then um, they would have, they couldn't work or couldn't get job interviews. And then same with ex-gang people. So I started doing that for free. Just the machine for a teardrop is five seconds. And they need a few treatments. It cost me, not, it cost me electricity. Really, honestly. And they can't go to a tattoo uh, laser place because they would charge them $400. So I just did that, and it, and it caught on. And I found, I found a lot of people wanted this. So then my machine broke after five years, which it does. And we had, they had no more contract, what do you call it, a um, maintenance uh, warranty contract, whatever. So it was $30,000 to fix it, and they couldn't promise it would ever work again. So then I sold it for parts and broke even, and I was fine. But then I had no machine and no way to help these people anymore. I had like 300 people waiting. So then I said, okay. Why don't I just ask other places to do this? I figure they will. Well, maybe if I ask the other tattoo laser places in New York City, would you do one or two people a week? And I did, and they said yes. So I made a 501c3 corporation, which took like a year to make, or a year and a half. Well, the corporation took 10 minutes, but the 501 took a year and a half. And now we have, I think, 15 or 18 places around the country. I don't have a machine, but they do. And what I basically, I'm, I'm like Match.com now. So what we do is we try to connect people who need this service with 
people who can provide it. And we expanded a little bit because we started to get calls from prosecutors in courts. And they have clients that are women, mostly, who are survivors of human trafficking. And they're branded with tattoos. And I go, well, that sucks. We should help them. And they need the tattoo removed for sometimes work reasons because it's re-entering society and such to try and... Well, that's a stupid way to say it. They're trying to get a you know, job that you can't have a tattoo on your face. And also, in their case, it was psychological recovery because it says cash money on their chest or there's a pimp's name or barcode. So anyway, we would do that for free. In those particular cases, the tattoo could be anywhere in their body, not their hands and neck. So that was the deal. So for those who are former gang members or for those who got tattoos while they were in prison, you would only do it for free if they're visible tattoos. That's correct. Because we're not doing someone's chest or back or leg tattoos. It's ridiculous. It's a huge mess. But, you know, swastika on your forehead is not going to help your employment practice. Well, it depends where you work, I guess. But, no, they're, yeah, yeah the, the visible means neck, face, and hands, gang things. And what I learned over these years doing this is that people in prison get tattooed because they have to. It's not a fashion choice. You'll be killed if you don't get tattooed. Is that right? That's right, yeah. What's that culture explain that to me? What have you learned about that? I've learned in prison you have to join a group to survive. You can't, there's no such thing as a lone guy. You've got to pick a group. And the ones on TV are the white supremacists, the black guys, the Muhammad, um, Muslim people, and whatever guy gangs, you know. But there's other groups too, I guess. Anyway, you've got to be in a group, and they tattoo each other. That's how they identify themselves. So you have to join that, and you have to get tattoos. Usually, And it's visible because otherwise it's not visible. How varied have the tattoos been that you've removed over the years? Jailhouse tattoos are the gang insignias. I don't, ask, I don't ask people what gang it is or anything. It's not my place to ask anything. But, you know, get, there's a gang that has three dots. That's a famous Mexican gang, I think. There's you know, Crips and Bloods, which you hear about on television. All the ones on TV. And then the ones you never heard of. And they can be simple as a little tiny symbol, like a black little L or T or J or something, or, a few, or you know, half their face covered. And they also get tough guy tattoos, like I'm going to kill your family, or things on their face that are, you know, not necessarily pleasant and scares people. You could have like a, a unicorn on your face that would scare people. <laughs> face tattoos scare people. It's like a thing. It just makes you look terrifying, so it doesn't matter what it is. It's got to go if you want to work. And also, people, to add to the conversation, a lot of times the employer, if you got the tattoo in the process of being removed, an employer would hire you so you could move from one job to another, if you follow me. So you, you work in the back job in the warehouse. They don't care if you're tattooed. But now you've been there five years, you want to move up and be a manager or, you know, whatever. Then the, that's a great use for this, too. It's not just getting a job. It could be improving your standing at a job. You said that you don't necessarily ask people about the tattoo, but do they share their stories with you? Do they open up to you? When you're a physician, you can't ask those things. And you get bits and dribbles. And I have talked to prosecutors, for example, or advocates about stories. And, you know, the stories are what you think. They're captured and shipped here in containers or shipped over under false... The one of the most common is they're shipped over under false pretenses of being an actor or a a pair or a, a job of some kind. And then they're sold into sex slavery and kept in chained in a basement or a house somewhere and, you know, sexually tortured, depending on your point of view, and, you know, sold into sex slavery. So it's, it's not, that story doesn't change much. And the tattoos are branding for ownership. Have people come back to you and said, you know what, doctor, you've changed my life. If it weren't for this, 
I would never have gotten that job. I might have ended up back in jail. Yes, yeah, sure, people say that, but, you know, it's my job. You know, if, if you worked as a fireman, I mean, that's your job, to not let the kid get burnt up in the house. It's, 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 uh, it's not being heroic, but, yeah, I think I've gotten a few dozen letters like that from people who thank you for, you know, because they couldn't work otherwise. And the, the statistic that powers the entire Fresh Start project is this, that if you get out of jail and don't have a job, that group of people, the unemployed, have a 90% return to prison rate in two years. If you get out of jail and get a job, it's only 10%. So it's the job that keeps you out of jail. 90% versus 10% is such a gigantic difference, it's value in it to help these people get work as opposed to going back to jail. And obviously it costs $60,000 a year for someone to be in jail. America has the highest prison population in the world. Three million plus people. Three million times 60,000 is carry the one. A ton of money. So if I get 10 people to not go back to jail by getting a tattoo off their face, that's 600,000 a year that you are not paying as a tax dollar. You know, forget if you're like a nice person. That's $600,000 you're not paying in tax dollars to keep that guy in jail. And plus that guy's not working. So he's paying, buying stuff and paying sales tax and has a job he's paying into social security so it's uh, on the plus side and perhaps his kids and wife or spouse are now less likely to become homeless and end up on section 8 and food stamps because they have a working person in the house you know so it has a this very positive ripple effect one person getting a job when did you start to get your tattoos was it prior to you starting this or was it something that you started to do even after i got tattoos on my my first one i was 20 something 28 26, I forget how old I was, honestly. And it was, um, and then once I got two or three, I got four or five. Then my friends would tattoo me for free. All my tattoos are for free for my friends, or, you know, a few hundred dollars. So it got to be fun, and you know, I like to have them. And it's weird not to, I, I, people who don't have to, tattoos just seem weird to me. It's just weird not to have them. And all my, I, I mean, I live in a tattoo world, kind of. And um, it's very funny, because people who have tattoos, like we have a barbecue or a beach thing, People with tattoos never talk about tattoos. It just doesn't come up. We talk about sports and normal junk. But people who don't have tattoos have a lot of questions about tattoos. Does it hurt? Why'd you get that? What's it mean? And we're like, I don't know. You know who knows? But I had them since my 20s, and um, I think they're really fun and a good positive thing. But if they're forced upon you because you're a sex worker or they're a, a jail thing or you're, you know, used to be in a gang when you were 14, and now you can't get work because of it, that's a whole... And, and they want them removed. And we're not, like, you know, dragging them in here. They're, like, so thankful to get this tattoo removed so they could get this job they really want. These aren't, these aren't people that are begrudgingly being dragged into work. They're very, very, very happy to do it. Right now, we have 2,600 people waiting. 2,600, just me. Applicants waiting for tattoo removal and not enough people to help them. Um, I'm trying to buy a machine from my own office, which I could do 10, 15 people a day if I had a machine. So if anyone, any of your listeners has like 300 grand sitting around, just give me a call. We're a 501c3 officially. We can't accept money. We're contacting foundations, and I'm trying to get sports people to endorse all the usual suspects to try to get money like all the other million projects in the world. But if we need a machine, and the, uh, the uh, laser company that makes the machine um, has been kind enough. They offered us a matching. They gave us a letter and gave us a matching donation. you believe this? Dollar for dollar. So if we get 150 grand... We can buy the machine that costs 300 We get the machine for half price. Isn't that amazing? 
It's pretty fantastic. It's, yeah. It happened like a year ago. We haven't got to be able to get the money, though. But we're asking different foundations to give us the money. We don't even want the money. We just want the machine. They can buy the machine for us and deduct it as a tax gift, whatever. What's the process like to remove a tattoo? How simple is it? It's super simple. You um, put lidocaine or novocaine to make it numb so it doesn't hurt. And then the light, the light that does the tattoo removing is a laser light. It does, it's the size of a dime, the light spot, the spot of it. And it does 10 pulses per second. If you can imagine that, it goes, that's the audio radio version. That was my impersonation of a laser machine. It's pretty good. It sounds like this. It goes, that's so, that would do a two-inch tattoo right there, those few seconds. And then it puffs up and it feels like a burn for a few seconds. Then, you, then it feels normal again. Then in about five, ten days, it looks like it did in the first place. But the next five, six weeks, it fades. The ink is being taken away by your immune system. So then the tattoo will be half gone in probably two months, and then do a second treatment. So the treatments are two months apart. It take a year. So it takes 10 to 15 treatments to go back to skin. They say that. But the truth is it can be three or four. If you have white skin with black ink, it's very easy. If you have dark, as your skin gets darker, the melanocytes, that is your skin, the cells in your skin, the dye in your skin that makes your skin have different shades of um, darkness, that absorbs the laser light. So less gets to the ink. So that takes lower energies and more treatments, if you follow me. So say six or eight treatments like that, and the tattoo's gone. That said, does your nonprofit provide referrals for people who need additional support once they've had that tattoo removed? Uh, Anybody asks us to help them, any organization, and we hear somebody, we connect them for sure. We'll say, okay, I'm looking for, oh, yeah, these people do that. Go talk to these guys. And then they, we introduce people like that, sure. But that's not our formal function. That's an informal thing. And the, the sex trafficking people are almost, without exception, brought by an advocate, an attorney or a project that's helping them. There's one called Sanctuary for Families, which does this. It's a gigantic, great, wonderful organization. And so any organization that brings us someone, we use code names and code numbers. We don't get their information. And we don't publish their tattoos. We don't um, put their tattoos on the Internet or email them. It's all kept... Uh, we got a great respect for their privacy and their safety. I mean, these people can be testifying against whoever. I don't know. You know, you don't know what their mess is because they're being brought by prosecutors. And they're not called prosecutors for nothing. <laughs> you know? So we don't ask questions. We just treat them quietly and uh, politely and send them on their way. So you talked about your wait list. How many people would you say you've helped altogether? Well, before I did it, when I was doing it informally, I probably helped two or 300 people before I even started this project. And I started it, we got our, we came a 501. We've been doing it with other, working with other places for four years, maybe. So f- six, 700, uh, 500, that order of that. I, I don't have a count. But in the 500 range, it's not 10 million, it's not five, in the hundreds. And um, we don't have staff. It's just me and I have one volunteer. So we don't really follow up as good as we could. We try. We ask patients to, oh, after, if you're getting hired, tell us, you know. If you get your, ta- if you're happy, tell us, you know. You know, we don't have a staff of 20 people, which we could use easily to do this. Because, I mean, I have 2,600 people waiting, just me, on my verb, you know, homemade high school level website. Can you imagine? It's crazy. I mean, I could hire hire 10 doctors and have 10 machines and run them full time easily. The demand is there, no doubt. Yeah, and it's crazy not to do it. I don't know if the state should do it or, you know, it's such a crazy world. I don't know. You know, obviously, if I was, if the mission was to reduce the number of people going back to jail, which I don't believe is the mission, if that were the mission, you would have tattoo removal service provided for anybody who gets out of jail. But maybe 
not the day they get out, maybe five years later. This service, taking someone's tattoo off their face to help them with work is a very weird little thing. It treats a subset of a subset. This is kind of important. We treat the person who's been out of jail or out of gangs for five years, seven years, eight years, so they're way behind them. It's another life. Now they're at a different point in their life where they're going for job interviews after three, five years of hard work, job training, interview training, uh, dealing with their legal crap, uh, getting a driver's license. I mean, it's, it's endless, you know, a lot of stuff. It's like diversion courts do this. A lot of people are involved. And this person finally, after years of work, is finally, finally ready to go for a job interview. That's our customer. Did you come up with a name, Fresh Start? Yeah, just because it's, <laughs> it was a real genius move because it's a fresh start. It's like selling soda and calling it soda. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> fresh start. But, you know, it's funny. I said fresh start because that's what people called it. But what's funny is I Googled it. It was like thousands of them. It's like, I can't imagine. It's like thousands of fresh starts. So I had to do it. Fresh start tattoo removal program is the actual legal name because fresh start was like thousands of funny things. But essentially, that's what you're doing. I think it was, a, a it, was a, it was like an underarm deodorant and a women's hygiene product. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of weird things called Fresh Start, so I had to lengthen it out. So it's called Fresh Start Tattoo Removal Program. And I would like to invite people who need their tattoos removed to contact us, and we'll try our best. We do. We we now put all names in a hat and draw them out that way because of the we have so many people. There's no way to decide, so we just pull them out of a hat and do it by lottery. Thank you for interviewing me. Doctor, thanks so much. My pleasure. Great to be here. Dr. David Ories practices on Manhattan's Lower East Side. You can learn more about his Fresh Start program at freshstarttattooremoval.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.